Please pray with me. Almighty God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear and believe your word with joy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 23. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. We are in a sermon series in Ephesians. We just started it. So if this is your first week, you haven't missed much. But we're finishing chapter 1 this morning. And if you were with us last week, we started in verse 15. And we said that 15 through 23, which is the end of chapter 1, is the first of Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians. And because it's a prayer, and in fact, in Greek, verse 15 through 23 is one complete sentence, or it's one sentence. Really, it's a run-on sentence, I guess. And because of that, we've included some of the verses from last week in here, again this week, to give us some context. So what you see is Paul is praying that the Ephesians and all Christians who read or hear this letter, that they would grow in the knowledge of God. And last week, particularly, we saw he prayed for three more specific things that they would come to know. And those things, first, were that Christians would come to know the hope to which God has called them to in Christ, that they would know the riches of his inheritance, and then lastly, that they would know the greatness of his power. And and this is where we're going to pick up sort of the transition. Paul is going to expound upon what type of power God has, and not just some abstract power, but power toward his people. So those three things that he prayed for, hope, inheritance, and knowledge of his power, they all serve one thing, which is knowledge of God. And then, really, they're all rooted in the power of God because a hope and an inheritance, to keep it steady and sure, must be connected to a power that can keep it, right? And so, he does transition into this particular power, and this particular power is what we're going to talk about this morning. And this power is not simply an abstract power. It's a personal power, and it's a power that's directional. It's purposeful. And he says it right here. It's his power toward us who believe, that is, Christians, that is, the body of Christ. So really, a question when we finish up this prayer might be, how is it that we can be sure of God's power toward us? Now, we live in a a day and age where power really matters. We all have it, actually. The question is, how do you use your power? Even a two-year-old has power. If you don't believe me, 
just walk out these doors after this worship service and observe. Two-year-olds have power, right? Because you can describe power as simply the capacity to influence and act upon another. And so power really matters, and we all have it. How do we use it? And often we tend to think of power as mainly in great and mighty things. For example, people in great positions of authority. And this makes sense because no doubt someone who has a great position of authority has more capacity, more resources to act upon others or to influence. So, for example, when people say that America is the most powerful nation on earth, it's not because we're the biggest nation, because we're not, but they often say that because we have the largest economy and most advanced military, both of which increase America's capacity to act, influence, or direct things. And given the way that we understandably think about power then, it naturally flows to think about God's power as simply being the greatest because since he's infinite, he has infinite resources. He has an infinite capacity to act or to influence or direct things. And of course, this is true. But yet, there's also something else that makes God's power significant. There's also something else that Paul is speaking to in this prayer that he wants us to know about God's power toward us. And today, in this passage, we're going to see that something else. And that something else is revealed in God's great power that he publicly put on display in the resurrection of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see that God does have a categorically categorically different type of power, a power that actually overcomes death by raising Jesus from the dead. And it overcomes evil by putting Jesus as king over all things. To overcome death and to overcome evil requires a categorically different type of power. And that's what Paul is going to show us today. So the first thing that Paul shows us when he wants to tell us how we can be sure of God's power toward us who believe is that God gave us a decisive demonstration of divine power. And he did that first in the resurrection. So if you look here, verse 20. This power that Paul is praying that we would know is the same power, the NIV says, or in ESV here, according to that power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So last week, if you were with us, we talked about the vastness of God's power. And, and I, I used an illustration of a neutron star. And, and I won't go into the whole illustration again, but suffice it to say that a neutron star is this incredibly powerful real thing that exists. And apparently there's this thing called a a supernova explosion. And when that happens, it creates this star that the matter is so dense that if you were to take a teaspoon and just go like this, that teaspoon of that matter would weigh as much as Mount Everest. And we said this is incredible power. It's truly amazing. And yet Paul does not connect this aspect of God's power toward us with creation, as, as amazing as that is. He connects it to resurrection. And I think the reason he does this is because Paul doesn't only 
desire for us to know the sheer magnitude of God's power. But he also wants to show us that God's power is categorically different. There's something more to God's power than we tend to recognize when we think of power. And it's kind of like this. I mean, recently I was at the Science Center with my girls, and I took my two oldest girls to one of the live shows. And the show was on combustion. And the reason that's cool for kids is because you blow things up in that show. But the way they started the show was he held up a piece of paper just like this, and he said, what is this? And everyone yelled, paper, right? Brilliant. And then he said, he took it and he crumbled it up, and he threw it on the ground, he stomped on it in a very entertaining way for the children. And then he picked it up, and he said, is this paper, does it look different? And everyone says, yes. And why? Well, because it was crumpled up. Then he takes it, and he sort of irons it out with his hand, and he picks it up, and now it's pretty flat again. And he says, is it still paper? And everyone says, yes. And then he says, scientists call that a physical change, right? My power, he, he used his power to crush it up, but yet he didn't utterly change the paper. It was still paper. Was he stronger than the paper? Yeah, of course. Did he affect the paper? Did he act on the paper? Yes, of course he did. But then they turned the lights down and he took a lighter, took the piece of paper, and he lit it on fire. And then you see ash going everywhere. And then he asks the children, what's on the ground? Is that still paper? And of course the right answer is no. It's now something else. And he said, exactly. Scientists call this a chemical change because it went from paper to something else and it can never go back. You see, the divine resurrection power is more than a physical change. It's more than a power that can act on something and have its way with something, although it is that. But it's closer maybe to what we call a chemical change, and this is why. Resurrection power is the type of power that can actually reverse things. It can actually take that ash and turn it back into paper, but it can do something even more amazing than turn it back into paper. It can make it paper that will never burn again. You see, resurrection power is kind of like chemical change in that it can reverse the curse of sin and death. It can restore things thought lost forever. And once you have this power, evil and death can actually be overcome because they can be both destroyed and reversed. See, all other types of power to address evil and death as noble and terrific as they can be, will always stop short of resurrection power. Because you can't bomb evil away forever. And you can't stop death with medical advancements forever. You see, you have to change the very nature of the world in order to overcome death and evil. It's a new type of power. And we live in a world now, Paul is saying, where God has brought his power to work against the effects of sin, death, and evil. In the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God, which we'll talk about in a minute. So what this means is Paul wants us to know that all of us live in what Eugene Peterson calls a resurrection cosmos. We live in a cosmos that is forever changed because God has unleashed in Jesus resurrection power that doesn't just act and influence upon things. It goes one step further and reverses and changes and redeems and restores 
all things. And you see, the Jews knew that this was something that God was going to do. What was shocking to them, it seems, is that he would do it in the middle of history and not at the end of history. And so now we live in this interesting time where God has already decisively acted in Jesus, unleashing his resurrection power, creating a resurrection cosmos where God's power is not just acting and influencing on things, although it is doing that, but it's also restoring and repairing and redeeming things at the same time. And this is what's so magnificent to Paul. This is what Paul is preaching. And so we live in a resurrection cosmos This is the type of power that the world actually needs. This is the type of power that this church actually needs because this is the type of power that can bring new life. This is the type of power that secures the Christian hope because if the Christian hope is anything, it's hope that nothing broken in our lives has to remain that way. Things can actually be repaired and restored. If the Christian hope is anything, it's that nothing lost in our lives has to remain that way, but that God will seek it out and find it and actually replace it with something better and something greater. And so when Paul talks about the power that roots our hope and our inheritance, at the end of this prayer in chapter one, he wants us to know that it is a power that has the capacity and influence not just to act and change and direct, but to redeem and restore. The second thing he wants us to see about this power is that in this decisive demonstration of divine power, he publicly displays resurrection, but also ascension. And this is very important as well. If you read on here, he says he worked this resurrection power, raising Christ from the dead, seating him, at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then he doesn't just say above all rule and authority. He says far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and, 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 and. Look how many ands he says. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Oh, and not only in this age, but also in the, one, in the one to come. Oh, and, another and, he put all things under his feet. This is what God did in Jesus Christ in the ascension. So this is what that means. He hasn't just unleashed his resurrection power in the world. He took his resurrected one and placed him as king over all things, even now. And Paul's actually quoting Psalm 8 here, particularly Psalm 8, verse 6. So you see, in Psalm 8, The psalmist is talking about mankind's role in the universe. That mankind was to rule over the earth as God's representative and to take his reign and rule all over the earth. And we know that that didn't go so well. We know that when sin entered the world, that mission was broken. And yet Paul takes up this psalm that the Israelites had been singing and praying for generations. And he says, Jesus actually fulfills this psalm. The writer of the Hebrews does the same thing. It's connected to Psalm 110 as well. And Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is another chapter on the resurrection, he mentions this verse again. And what he tells the Corinthians is that Jesus' 
ultimate universal kingship is yet to come. But as he tells us in this verse, it has already begun. Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things, not just the church, all things, everywhere, all the time. There's not a millisecond that Jesus is not reigning and ruling. And yet this is why it's so challenging to live in an already not yet world. Because we know this is already true, and yet the way that we experience the world, we look around and we wonder, how can this be true? We reflect on our week or on the last three months or on the last year, and we think it's impossible that Jesus was overseeing this. How is that possible? But then we remember that Ephesians is an invitation to see more. We see that Ephesians is an invitation to not leave our five senses behind, but to no longer take them as true north. Ephesians is the invitation to invite us to look and see what God is up to in a way that we never could have seen unless God tells us he is up to. Which is why Paul prays for revelation. He prays that God would allow us to see what he has said he is doing. And as I was thinking about this week, you know, some of you, I don't know what you experienced this week. I don't know the hardship that you've gone through. But many of you, I do, actually. Many of you, I do know what the last week has been like from you. Because you've told me. I know what the last months have been like because I have the privilege of being in a position that you entrust me with these hard things. And I read passages like this and prepare sermons like this, and I hear you, I see you in my mind's eye saying, well, what about this? What about right here? And my heart goes out to you. And there are times in my life when I experience pain and suffering and trial, and I read verses like this to see, well, okay, so... Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, even now, and yet this is happening? How is that possible? And of course, there's a whole element that we haven't talked about yet. When he says all power and authority and dominion, he's cluing us into something that we'll take head on in chapter 6, which is that there's more than... uh, than relational strife happening in your life right now. There's something deeper. There's something more. There may be something more sinister beneath that because there are spirits and realities at work. There's a war going on that we are right in the middle of. And Ephesians chapter 6, in a few weeks, we'll deal directly with that war, and Paul speaks to that. But this morning, what I want to point out to you is that this invitation to more, first, is an invitation to a, more, a broader perspective. Imagine this with me. Imagine you could climb up to a mountain in North Carolina, right? Lots of us, lots of you, unfortunately I wasn't one of these people, lots of you went to North Carolina this summer. And you do that for lots of reasons. It's beautiful, it's less humid, you get away, but also it's gorgeous, right? It's not flat. And so you go and it's wonderful. And imagine that you climbed up a mountain and you looked out and you saw a river, 
And imagine that you knew this river eventually emptied into an ocean. But you can't see that. You can't see that far. And in fact, you can't even see the whole river. But you see bits and pieces of it. And it's going this way. And you think, oh, yes, it's heading in the direction of the ocean. It's heading towards its destination. But then the next time you see the river, it sort of curls back on itself. And it seems to be going the wrong way. And then it goes again. And then it's, and then it's way afield. And then, then you pick it up miles away and somehow, you're not sure how, it did get back pointing in the right direction. And you just don't know. Why? Because we don't have the perspective to see it all. But we do know because we've been told this river empties into the ocean. And what Paul at minimum right now wants us to do at the end of his prayer in chapter 1 is he wants us to be able to see, to believe with the eyes of faith, right, towards us who believe his power is directed at us. And he is inviting us to trust. To trust even when we're on that river and we start bending back on ourselves and we think, what's happening? Where is my life going? Is there purpose? He's inviting us, and he'll, he'll go into more detail later, but he's inviting us to trust God's power. This is an invitation to see more by faith, by trust. The second thing we see that roots our hope in God's power is first this public divine demonstration. And then the second thing is a gift. It's a gift given to his beloved body. And I see this in verse 22 and 23. So not only is Jesus raised and ascended and ruling and reigning and will one day come and fulfill his reign and rule, making all things new, he will put all things under his feet, he's done this, and gave him, gave, there it is, the word gave, that's where I get gift, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So how is it that God works his power toward us? He does it by giving us the gift of his son who now is not just reigning over the world but he's given as a gift as the head of the church. And of course, head is the source. Head is the authority, right? Even in medical language in these days of the New Testament, it would have been understood simply that the head of a body gives it its life. It gives it its energy. And wherever the head looks, the body follows. And Jesus has been given by the Father as our head over us, the church. And in giving Jesus to his church, he directs us with resurrection power and fills us with resurrection life. Because that's what the head does. It both directs and it fills. And that's what he says here. He says, that Jesus as head of his body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, we are the f- Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. He is the first act of God in this new resurrection cosmos that doesn't just change and act things, but redeems and restores things. And so the church 
is the body that is being filled and being sent. The church is the body that is being filled and being sent. And you see, this is how we get to participate in resurrection power. Remember the call to worship when Paul prayed that he would somehow attain to the resurrection, to the power of the resurrection? See, the resurrection is everyday life, but filled by Jesus. Right? The resurrection life is something we participate in now. The fact that you're different today and you actually love Jesus more than you did yesterday, maybe, or at least a year ago or two years ago, that is a miracle in the sense that it's resurrection power. And you know what? You know how it was displayed? It was displayed in less anger and more love, maybe. Maybe it was displayed in more generosity. Maybe it was displayed in a perspective that realized you weren't the center of the universe. Very ordinary, seemingly, everyday realities, everyday changes, as we become more like Jesus, it's actually far from ordinary. The source is resurrection power. And so this is how we get to participate with Jesus in his resurrection rule, in this resurrection cosmos. He's the king, he's the head, and we are his body. And the way to participate is to be joined to his body by faith. You and I have to receive life from Jesus in order to participate with him. He doesn't have tryouts. He doesn't say, okay, so here's the mock mission. I'm going to drop you in the middle of this jungle and see how well you perform, and then I'll draft the best. That's not how this works. We are like containers that God fills with his power. And that's how we change. And so as we're filled with his life, increasingly we are changed. And as we are increasingly changed, we are sent into the world as conduits of his fullness. And you know, this is actually another way to state our vision as a church. The way it's on the website is our vision is to see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if we said and could say our vision is to see our communities flourish through the fullness of Jesus Christ being through us to the world. We are broken vessels, cracked vessels. The only thing you and I have to offer the world is Jesus through us. That's what Paul is saying. The only way that you and I get to participate in the resurrection cosmos as as we bit by bit get better at receiving and we, we turn from those things we think will give us life. The Bible calls that repentance. And we look upon the object of true life, which is called faith. And the Christian life is doing that moment by moment, day after day. And the Christian life, then, is the power of resurrection that we receive through that turning and exercising of faith. You see, this is not self-centered power that we see. But leadership by our king that takes the care to serve spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And I was thinking about power. I started by saying power is a big deal, and it is. And, and I was reminded of 
Harry Potter, actually. The first one. It's at the end of the book, or if you've only seen the movie, it's at the end of the movie when uh, Harry is in the Chamber of Secrets, and he has the Sorcerer's Stone. Sorry, Chamber of Secrets is the second one. He's down in this dungeon. Don't judge me. And uh, he has this, this uh, there's this scene, right? Let's start over. And, and Harry is talking to, now what he understands is, is Voldemort. And Voldemort says to Harry, there is no such thing as right and wrong, only power and those too weak to seek it. And as I, as I re- was reminded of that, I see that so often we, we actually believe that. We actually believe that power is a, is a finite resource, a zero-sum game. That I have to go get more of it and I have to hoard it and I have to keep it. But actually what we see in Jesus is we see the one who had infinite power, who left it behind and came and gave it up so that you and I who were lost could be found. So that you and I who are separated from hope could be attached to the source of hope. And so as we move on from chapter 1 and go next week into chapter 2, where he tells us more specifically how this new life came about, the invitation I have for us this week is when we find ourselves in moments where we do not see the hope of God, we do not see God using his power for us, that we would look to the resurrection and that we would look in hope to what God promises he will do. And then we will trust him that that life belongs to us now. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would come, that you would help us to not mainly trust our own perspective, but that we would trust the vision of more that you're giving us in Ephesians. That we would see Paul's words as divinely inspired. That we would reflect on them even in the pain and trials of our own life and that we would trust that because Jesus you are on the throne reigning and ruling increasingly bringing your resurrection power that we would believe you have the power to restore and to redeem and in the end make all things right and it's in Jesus name we pray amen